From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Hans Holbein the Younger was one of the greatest artists of the Northern European Renaissance. In fact, he was one of the greatest artists of all time. German by birth, he moved via Basel, Paris and Antwerp to the court of Henry VIII. And it is because of him that we can imagine the king, his wives and his world. Holbein was the greatest of portrait artists, but he was also a master designer of woodcuts, of ceiling and wall paintings, wall hangings, goldsmith's works. He could work at any scale and in any medium, from miniatures to the large, mysterious and virtuoso double portrait, the ambassadors. Holbein's mastery was in creating a vision that could be believed. His exceptional talent was creating such realistic portraits that they almost seemed to be alive. Holbein knew this. His portrait of merchant Dietrich Bonn from 1533 is inscribed, add but the voice, and you might wonder if his father or his painter created this. This justified boasting is, however, one of only a few lines of Holbein's written voice that we have. Today, in the first of a two-part podcast special on Holbein, we explore what we know about one of history's most private of geniuses. Joining me to discuss Holbein is a panel of experts. Dr. Susan Foister is the doyen of Holbein studies. She is Deputy Director and Director of Collections at the National Gallery in London, where Holbein's Ambassadors hangs. And she's the author of several books on Holbein, including Holbein and England. She's joined by two scholars who have produced books on Holbein in the last year or so. Dr Jean Nicktelein is reader in the history of art at the University of York and the author of the 2020 book Hans Holbein, The Artist in a Changing World. And Franny Moyle is the author of The King's Painter, The Life and Times of Hans Holbein, which was just published this year. Hello, all of you. Thank you so much for joining me today. I'm very, very excited about this. I love Holbein. At one point, when I was feeling a little more flush than I am now, I asked Richard Bosworth to paint me a copy of a Holbein at Simon George, which is my prized possession. Of course, it's not a Holbein, but it's very nice. And so I'm very excited to be talking about him. And I wondered, Susan, if we could start by talking about a picture that many people will know, an extraordinary and magnificent work, The Ambassadors. I know that you could easily speak to us for an hour about this one picture, but could you briefly introduce us to Holbein's genius? Perhaps describe it, tell us what's so extraordinary about it. It is an absolutely amazing painting that always has a throng of people in front of it in the National Gallery. And it's wonderful to see people discovering this painting. They're looking at not just these two rather elaborately 
dressed men. One of them on the left is about as wide as he's tall because he's got these huge padded shoulders. But on either side, they stand of this elaborate arrangement of objects. And so you see people looking at all of those. You look at the astronomical instruments on the top shelf and the books and musical instruments on the bottom shelf. And sometimes people, if they look really closely, they can discover things like the broken string on the lute on the bottom shelf. But the real discovery comes when they move round to the right-hand side of the painting. And this blurry shape in front between the feet of the two men, something that was thought in the 19th century when the painting first came to the gallery, was an enormous fishbone Y painted in the middle of the picture. If you put yourself at an angle on the right-hand side, it just clicks into focus and you can see that it's a human skull. So you've got these two life-size living men and the prospect of death in front of them. And then if you look top left behind the green curtain, you can just see peeping out there's a silver crucifix. So perhaps the hope of resurrection for these Christian men in 1533 when Holbein painted the picture. So yes, it was painted when he was at Henry VIII's court, although... As I understand it, we only know for certain that he was King's painter a few years later. We don't really know exactly when he became the King's painter, and that's of a piece with the fact that we don't know that much, really, about Holbein's life. But what do we know? Franny, could you please start us at the beginning, give us a sense of what we do know? Well, we know that he was born in Augsburg in Bavaria in Germany, around about 1497, that his father, Hans Holbein the Elder, was an extremely established and talented painter who had a considerable workshop in Augsburg with his brother. And certainly the sort of young Holbein probably almost certainly did an element of training with his father and uncle. The Holbein workshop came to a rather sorry end around about 1516 due to his father's debts. And it was broken up around about that time, at which point Holbein and his brother restarted a career in Basel in Switzerland. His brother was probably there a little bit earlier. He was probably there sometime towards the end of 1515. And Holbein worked in Basel really until he came to England in 1526. His brother sadly died before that, probably of a bout of plague, Basel was very different from Augsburg because it had a big international printing industry and the Holbein brothers certainly got a sort of foothold as illustrators with some of the eminent Basel publishers. I suppose crucially we need to note that he's Hans Holbein the Younger because his father is Hans Holbein the Elder who is an artist And you've identified what you think to be the earliest portrait of the young Hans. It's earlier than we thought. Can you tell us about that and what we can learn from it? There is a very well-known family portrait, if you like, of the Holbein family, Hans Holbein the Elder, and his two sons, Ambrosius and Holbein the Younger, which Holbein the Elder painted in 1504. And he smuggled this little group portrait of himself and his sons into a piece of devotional art. 
which now hangs in Augsburg State Gallery. What I discovered when I went to look at it was actually also hanging in the gallery was another piece of devotional art by Hans Holbein the Elder, two years earlier, painted in 1502. And actually on really close examination, there is a five-year-old Hans Holbein in a depiction of the miracle of the loaves and the fishes, where he is playing the role or assuming the role of the little boy who, according to the Gospel of St John, takes the fish to Jesus. And the likeness between the two children is, to my eye, irrefutable. And I'm pleased to say that I did run this by a number of other scholars who agreed that this did look very much like a very juvenile Holbein. And I think what's so interesting about these two paintings taken together painted clearly so closely together, just two years apart. Obviously, it's evidence of a strong family bond. There may, of course, just be a sort of pragmatic thing that a child is to hand, let's use him as a model. But putting that to one side, I think if you look at the compositions of both, Holbein the Elder uses various techniques to invite us to look at this child. In the later picture, He's sort of pointing at Holbein the Younger and Ambrosius has his arm round his brother. In the earlier one, the child is, although on the left wing of the devotional piece, it's an epitaph, nevertheless, he's central and he is very central. And he's in contemporary dress, whereas everyone else is in sort of biblical clothing. And I think that might suggest that even as a tiny child, there was something notably astonishing about this boy, that perhaps he was already displaying some sort of astonishing talent that his father and the local community would have understood and would have sort of explained why everyone was so pleased to see him memorialised in the paintings. And you can only identify that because his father's artwork is sufficiently good for you to be able to see that. I wonder if we might spend a little time thinking about what he might have learnt from his father and from those around him in Augsburg. Jean, what do you think he might have learnt from his father? Well, he would have learned things ranging from the specific techniques of how to make a work of art, but also how to think about the relationship between observation of things in the world and turning them into an artwork and the relationship between imagination, creation, study from life. And I think another thing he would have learned in Augsburg was the relationship between different styles and the opportunity to choose different styles. So to say a bit more about each of those. So we don't know for certain, but it seems extremely likely that the two boys were trained by their father in his workshop. And we can see from the materials that Holbein uses, especially in his early works, and the way that he composes works, and the way that he designs them, that they're very similar to the works of his father. So the way that he uses silver point as a drawing technique, the way that he applies on paint to panel some of his early compositions. So you can see that training that he's had in Augsburg. One of the characteristics of Holbein the Elder's works is that Holbein the Elder did a number of drawings, sketches from life. So sometimes these are portraits of individuals, sometimes they're studies of, you know, hands or objects. And we have a number of those that survive in these sketchbooks that he kept. 
And then he very often incorporated then these details into his paintings, which are nevertheless as a whole much more imaginative or otherworldly in many respects compared to the work of his son. So Holbein the Younger growing up would have seen this ability to look at something in the world, to transform it, turn it into an artwork. And then another really important feature about Augsburg. So Augsburg is a really exciting city. It was a center for banking, international trade. There was a printing industry, and there were a lot of artists also in Augsburg. So besides Holbein the Elder, there were a number of other important artists, such as Hans Borkmeier, for instance. And some of those other artists were earlier, I would say, than Holbein the Elder in bringing in more Italianate styles, so motifs and concepts that really draw upon ideas from classical antiquity and really bring a different kind of aesthetic into their works. And so Holbein growing up would have seen a more traditional Gothic German style, and then this slightly imported Italian-French classical style. And he would have learned that sense of, oh, there's different kind of styles that you might use for different purposes, or that patrons might ask you for one or the other. And as we've touched on, both in what you said, Susan, about the crucifix and what Franny said about the religious imagery, Hans Holbein the Elder was a master of the altarpiece. Do you see this religious imagery infusing Hans Holbein the Younger's work? Well, certainly when he started painting in Basel, he was commissioned to paint traditional religious works. I mean, he would have painted altarpieces just as his father painted altarpieces. That is not extraordinary in any way. That was just part of the range of figural compositions that artists were asked to do at that period. I think what is more extraordinary is when you come to something like the famous Dead Christ, this single panel of Christ that was supposed to have so impressed Dostoevsky that he remarked that he couldn't imagine how anybody could possibly believe in the resurrection because Holbein had so convincingly painted a dead body on the point of decay entombed within this single panel. That is something that does seem more extraordinary, more notable. And you can put that in the context of funerary monuments of this period. I mean, it must have belonged to something that did signal the resurrection and was part of the rituals of devotion and mourning in churches of that period. And yet there is something, I think, slightly cold-eyed about the way that he paints Christ in this painting that perhaps makes you think, perhaps, you know, with 21st century eyes about the status of religious belief in that period. That's really interesting. I'm really pleased you've raised that. It's a very unusual painting. Jean, you've written about this. What do you think makes it so convincing? So first, I think it's important to note that this painting, it represents Christ stretched out. You're looking at him from the side, just very slightly from above, but you just see him in this niche, in a kind of stone niche, and you don't see any surrounding context. It's just this dead body. And the way that it's painted, it's as if it could almost be an extension of your own space. So you don't have other figures around him. There's no narrative context. It's almost as if this body might be literally right in front of you. But as Susan said, I mean, it is a dead body, it's a corpse. 
So the flesh is kind of decaying and slightly green. His lids are open and his eyes are kind of rolled upwards. So you can see that, you know, there isn't a kind of human soul that's left in this body. It just looks as if it's a study from life. And that's so completely different from the way that Christ is always depicted. So in death, you always see him in a narrative context. You know that you're supposed to feel a kind of emotional sorrow for his suffering and the fact that he has sacrificed himself to save you. But this is just a corpse and it almost just leaves you to think of, well, what do I understand this corpse to be? Do I understand this as Christ? Do I believe that Christ is going to be resurrected? Because the painting itself doesn't tell you that. And I think that is really unusual. Franny? I think it's worth looking at that particular painting in the context of Holbein's relationship with Erasmus, who Holbein became very involved with in Basel and painted Erasmus's portraits a little later on in the 1520s, but was certainly part of the sort of humanist circle that surrounded Erasmus at the time. In some of his writing about art, about the visual arts, and particularly the visual arts and devotional painting, Erasmus said that not even Apelles, and I'm paraphrasing here, not even Apelles, that is the great classical antique painter, was good enough to properly convey the mind of Christ, i.e. the sort of proper spiritual integrity of Christ. No painter could do that, and it was only the Bible, the written word, if you like, that could give that a proper expression of Christ. When I look at that painting, I do wonder whether Holbein took that as a bit of a challenge, as someone who was measuring himself against Apelles as a very ambitious and self-conscious young painter. And I do wonder whether in his depiction of sacrifice, if you like, in that painting of the ultimate sacrifice of a human Christ who has died the most terrible death, whether he really is trying to show the mind, the teaching, the sort of sacrifice of Christ. And if you like, respond to Erasmus and that moment. That's very helpful. Okay, so let's just go back a little bit. Do we know what Hans Holbein the Younger's first work was? In a way, no, we don't know what his first work was. And of course, he would have probably assisted with his father's works. And there have been attempts to try to kind of find his hand in some earlier works. But the first one that we definitely know was by him and is dated was made towards the end of 1515. And it's a series of drawings that were made in a copy of Erasmus's Praise of Folly. So this is a book that had been written a few years earlier. It's a satirical work in which Folly, the personification of Folly, praises herself and all of her followers and talks about how wonderful they are. And so you can just immediately imagine the the satire involved in that. And this text had been reprinted in Basel. And there was a copy that was owned by a Latin teacher And in some way, we don't know exactly how this happened, but Holbein ended up doing a series of drawings and his brother probably added just a small number of them into this copy. So it seems that the brothers were perhaps taking some Latin lessons with Myconius, is the name of this figure. And Myconius wrote an inscription 
in the book that says these drawings were completed within 10 days in December 1515, and I showed them to Erasmus who enjoyed looking at them. Now these drawings, in some ways, they're actually kind of different than a lot of the other works that we have by Holbein because they are quickly done and spontaneous. And it's a style of drawing that actually we don't have that many of that style of drawings by Holbein for the rest of his life. They're very kind of funny, these little drawings. And what they are is there's various things that are talked about in the text and Folly is constantly dropping these allusions to classical mythology and religious ideas and various characters. And it seems as if they've been going through the text and every time something catches Holbein's attention, he suddenly thinks, oh, I can think of a little drawing, you know, that would enliven that idea. And sometimes it's something that's specifically in the text itself. Sometimes it's part of the commentary. There's a commentary that's published together with the text. And the wonderful thing about the text of Praise of Folly is that it operates on kind of multiple levels. So Folly as a figure is saying things overtly, but then you can also read all sorts of complexities into what she's saying. And the drawings themselves are like that as well, that you can see them as being these little kind of mini satires, which aren't just illustrating the text, but they're in a sense in dialogue with the text and providing his own perspective on it. I suppose given that Holbein's paintings and drawings are so realistic, and I guess we'll come back to talk a bit more about that, but it immediately strikes me, Susan, that you've written about the man who at the beginning of the 16th century was Europe's most famous painter, Albrecht Dürer, how much do you think Holbein is taking from him? Well, I think both got the most extraordinary imagination and then the ability and skill to translate what they're thinking into all kinds of human figures, settings, anything you like. I was thinking, actually, about Dürer as Jean was talking about the praise of folly, because I think that you also see this extraordinary way that Holbein uses little figures responding to ideas, being very animated, almost cartoonish in a lot of his graphic work, in the designs that he was making for the Basel printers while he was there. I think because we often in England think of Holbein as a supreme portraitist, we perhaps don't pay much attention to all of those wonderful woodcut designs that he made at that period, which are just so vivid and animated and full of these little figures doing different things. I suppose a little bit like you might think this of a marginalia in illuminated manuscripts, a slightly earlier period. And of course, Dürer was the great graphic artist of his time and Holbein must have known his graphic work. So in that way, you can imagine that there's a little bit of crossover, perhaps from the slightly older artist to the much younger artist who is then taking up the mantle of this, you know, vivid, imaginative type of graphic art. It's so good to remind us that he is an artist of so many different forms. But of course, as you say, we do think of him first and foremost as a portrait artist. And Franny's mentioned that he traveled to Basel, he's 18 years old, and he gets his first portrait commission. Jean, can you tell us about how he executed it? Yes, yeah, so this is a really remarkable commission because it's from the new mayor of Basel, a very important person, Jakob Meyer and his wife. And they have commissioned an 18-year-old to paint their portraits. So it's really quite extraordinary. I just wanted to mention something in relation to what Susan was saying about Dürer. I think one of the things that Dürer represented was the, the importance of 
constant imagination and constant novelty, you know, so this is so important in his work. He's always inventing new subjects, new ways of depicting things. Now, this first surviving portrait work by Holbein, I think he's still, in a sense, partly finding his feet. And so you can see him drawing upon tradition in a way that maybe in some of his later works, he departs a little bit more. So in this case, it's a diptych. So you have the man on the left, the woman on the right, which is a very standard arrangement. And so what he's done is that he must have first planned out what the overall composition and design was going to be. And in doing that, he's very clearly looked in particular at a woodcut portrait, which he would have seen in Augsburg, which similarly shows its sitter against a kind of backdrop of a classical arch. So what he's decided to do in his portrait of these two figures is that he's taken that idea of the two figures in front of the arch, but extended the arch across the two panels. So you can see him looking at a precedent and doing something with it. Now, in order to actually make this portrait, he must have planned that out first. And then he had a portrait sitting with each of the two figures. And wonderfully, we have the silver point drawings that he did for the two figures, as well as the paintings themselves. And so we can see, so he's using a material that he would have learned from his father. So metal point, um, it's a technique where you prepare some paper in advance um, with an abrasive substance, and then you use a metal stylus, which then interacts with the paper and leaves the marks. So there's no color. It's just, you know, a kind of silvery tone. And so he's used this material in order to depict the faces in particular in great detail and a little bit more sketchy, the clothing of the two sitters. And then he's added little touches of black and red chalk to give a little bit of a sense of the modeling. And then he's transferred these designs over to the panel. And I think we don't know for certain in this case if he mechanically traced them. We know that he did that for some of his later works, but you can also see that he's made adjustments. So for instance, he obviously decided that Jakob's nose was a little bit too large. So he made it just a little bit you know, smaller and a bit more shapely in the final painting. So you can see these little adjustments that he makes. And then he adds in this backdrop. So there's a kind of flat blue background and then a kind of strangely angled classical triumphal arch behind them and pillars at the side. So there's a sense that they are in touch with these classical ideas. And, and we know that Jakob himself had traveled um, to Italy and so on. So it's really kind of making a statement about representing them in great detail and great vividness, but also using this setting to say something about their status as well. Okay, Tristan, you've got 50 seconds. Go. Right, so Dan's given me a few seconds to sell the Ancients podcast. What is the Ancients, I hear you say? Well, it's like Dan's show, except just ancient history. We've got the groundbreaking new archaeological discoveries. This seems to be the oldest known dated depiction of the animal world, as far as we can tell, anywhere in the world. We've got the big names. It's one of those great things, Pompeii. It's kind of forever rising from the dead and from destruction. We've got the big topics. The man destroys seven legions in a day. No one in history has done that. Subscribe to the Ancients from History Hit wherever you get your podcast from. Oh, and Russell Crowe, if you're listening, we would love to have you on the Ancients. Spread the word, people. Spread the word. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. 
Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is is uncanny usa he says somebody's in the house and i screamed listen to uncanny usa wherever you get your bbc podcasts if you dare Did you feel with the portrait of Benedict von Herzenstein, which you've written very interestingly about, that actually this is the beginning of Holbein starting to experiment? When Susan and Jean were talking about Holbein learning from Dürer to be inventive, you know, it was very important to constantly stretch boundaries, be inventive, be creative, do something new. I think the idea of invention is really beginning in that portrait. And I use that word very carefully because I think today it's a word we tend to associate perhaps more with science than perhaps with art. And I think at the time Holbein was working, the sort of proximity of science and art was much closer. I think, you know, in an era of discovery, Generally, scientific discovery, rediscovery of classical knowledge and so on and so forth. I think that is a painting that begins to express how the artist can go beyond the bounds of traditional art and explore some of the new science, perspective, anamorphosis, verisimilitude. And in doing so, feel really novel, as if the artwork has an element of event. And I wish this was my observation. It isn't. It's actually the observations of the curators at the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York, where that portrait is held. But they have noticed that it has one of the earliest examples, if perhaps not the earliest example, of Holbein's sense of anamorphosis that we see in the ambassadors with the skull that suddenly turns from being a sort of fishbone, baguette, whatever, you know, into a skull. In that painting... It depicts a young man and very much unlike the Jakob Meyer 
double portrait. Here, rather than set against an ornate architectural background, he is placed in a small little grey corner. But in doing so, his own sense of mass, if you like, and the volume of his body and his clothing is magnified in a way. And curators at the Met noticed when they x-rayed the painting that Holbein enlarged the neck, he raised the shoulders, he made some adjustments to the right eye, the hand that Benedict is holding the sort of pommel of his sword feels very large. But they've noticed that as they move from left to right, all those enlargements, if you like, shrink back and suddenly proper proportion is found in the painting. But it does appear as if the figure projects forward from the painting into this sort of three-dimensional space. So that work of art, you know, by the time we get to the ambassadors, he has improved that and intensified that experience a thousandfold. But that's the beginning, I think, of someone who saw art, science, novelty, event, interaction with the viewer, all as fascinating possibilities to explore. Now, we've focused on his early life, and we should say that meanwhile, Holbein in his personal life has married a young widow called Elspeth, which enables him to become a master painter in Basel's Guild. And in fact, the subsequent unhappiness of the union, possibly, has been suggested as one reason that Holbein might have left Basel in 1524, travelled to France, where he met, under the patronage of the French king François Ier, Jean Clouet, the painter, but we want to get him to England. So why, when and how, Susan, did he first go to England? Well, we know that he got to England in the autumn of 1526 because we have letters between Thomas More sent to Erasmus who calls him a wonderful artist. Your painter, my dear Erasmus, is a wonderful artist. But then he expresses something that I think is still slightly mysterious and intriguing. He is worried about him actually getting enough work in England. Now, why is that? People have thought that perhaps that signals a complete lack of interest in art in Tudor England. This great artist comes across and he's completely ignored. Nobody wants to give him any work at all. I think it actually might be the contrary, that Holbein was very ambitious to get into Henry VIII's court at this period. And we know that Henry was already employing a lot of other artists. So it was perhaps going to be difficult for him to make that breakthrough. But yet we know that he made it. And by early in 1527, he was playing a major role in working on the backdrops for a banqueting house and entertainment theatre that Henry had commissioned to welcome a French embassy in May of 1527. So he very quickly made that breakthrough to being a court artist, which I think is surely the reason that he went to England in the first place. And you mentioned that his contact that he was lucky enough to have from Erasmus was Sir Thomas More. Can you tell us a bit about his portrait of More? Well, he made more than one portrait of Thomas More. He made an absolutely extraordinary portrait of Sir Thomas More 
himself, which today hangs in the Frick collection while the Frick is closed for refurbishment at the moment. But normally, marvellously, it hangs on one side of a fireplace on the left. And then on the right hand side, you see Thomas Cromwell. So these two great figures of the Tudor court sort of squaring up to each other either side of the fireplace. And in this portrait that Holbein made of Moore, you see not this rather ascetic figure, the figure who you know, secretly wore a hair shirt under his robes and was very devout in his faith. You see the Chancellor of the Duchy of Lancaster wearing wonderful fur-lined and velvet robes and looking extremely splendid. It's a very, very colourful, rich kind of portrait. I mean, it's the equal, I think, of the portraits that people like Raphael were making in Italy at this period, whether or not Holbein had gone there or seen them. That's the feeling that you get from this beautiful, beautiful portrait. But at the same time, you get the details very characteristic of Holbein, like the light shining on the stubble of Thomas More's face. He wasn't terribly closely shaven. I think most people weren't terribly closely shaven in Tudor times. So he made that individual portrait, but he also made this extraordinary lost portrait of Thomas More with his whole family. And he made that on a piece of linen cloth, which was a completely normal way of making paintings in this period. They just don't survive terribly well. And I think actually the portrait of Sir Thomas More and his family did quite well to survive until the 18th century, when unfortunately it perished in a fire. But it would have been the equivalent of a tapestry hanging up on a wall in Thomas More's house. And it was designed to give you the complete illusion that you were seeing through a wall and you saw the family of Sir Thomas sitting and standing in front of you, the entire family, and then you look through a doorway into the room beyond. It's an extraordinary picture. And we are fortunate that we have not just copies of it, but Holbein's own preparatory drawing for this, which is even more precious because it has annotations which seem to come from his own conversations with Thomas More about what the final composition should look like. This figure should sit and not stand, additions of final details and so on. So it's a very extraordinary working document, but it must have been an extraordinarily splendid and convincing piece of illusionistic painting. And it certainly was convincing. In your book, Franny, you quote Erasmus, so touched by seeing this picture that when he wrote to Moore's daughter, Margaret Roper, he wrote the following, I could scarcely find the words to express the delight I felt in my heart when the painter Holbein brought your whole family before my eyes so felicitously that I could not have enjoyed a better view if I had been among you. Often a great longing comes over me that I might have the good fortune to look upon that little society that is so dear. The painter's skilful hand has answered a considerable part of my prayer. And this I find lovely. Please give greetings to your mother, the estimable Dame Alice. I give her portrait a kiss since I cannot embrace her in person. Now, we know Holbein boasted of the similitude of his paintings. And, Franny, you argue that it largely accounted for his success. Was it very unusual? I think, yes. I think it's so hard for us today to imagine the real impact of portraiture then. 
particularly portraiture where a likeness is so convincing. But if you think this was an era where there was no photography, there was no magazine illustration, there was no video, paintings existed essentially in the flesh. Of course, they were reproduced as prints, but the experience of them, therefore, was really quite different, I think, much more intense. There was a preciousness to them, a level of interest. And so I think, therefore, the impact of a painting that so surprisingly brought the essence of the real person with it, you know, really stood out. If you look at Holbein's contemporaries, of course, there are the sort of Titians and Raphael's and so on and so forth, where, of course, a likeness is strong. But I think in the whole history of art, it's very hard to match Holbein in terms of his real skill. I mean, his paintings, you blink and you think they're breathing. And so I think their impact must have been considerable, astonishing. And Jinhee's painting portraits of people from a range of different social backgrounds at this point in time, you know, we've got the Guildfords, but also he's, in what seems astonishing to me, delivering works of dissimilar quality to clients like John and Thomas Godsart. What do you make of that, Jean? Yeah, and I think it's worth saying that there was a very common trope at the time that a great work of art was very lifelike and, you know, it would astonish you with its vividness. That was a kind of saying that was picked up from antiquity and would always be trotted out all the time and maybe wouldn't necessarily apply quite so well to some works rather than others. But you can imagine people seeing Holbein's work for the first time and suddenly having that sense of, I can really feel the significance of that statement, you know, which for some other artists might not actually come through quite so well, but I think in his works is just so astonishing. He was someone who wanted everything that he produced to be top quality. So we know that there are other artists at the time who had a lot of assistants and you might, for instance, with some works, delegate some of the work to that assistant. And you can kind of see a range of, you know, hand or quality within works that are produced. With Holbein, if he's making a work for someone who's extremely important and wealthy, it tends to be large and or the materials tend to be extremely expensive. If he's making a work for someone of a more modest status, the work will probably be smaller. It might not use such luscious materials, but the quality of the representation is consistent throughout. So we get the sense that although we suspect he probably wanted to go to England in order to get into the court and to have an access to a wider range of aristocratic patronage, which wasn't available to him in the continent, that didn't mean that he was only going to make work for the very top end of society. Anyone who wanted a portrait from him, he would make for them, but he would differentiate in terms of what they could afford, but everything would be of this very, very highest quality. And Susan, you've reminded us it's not just as a, I can't really use that word with Holbein, but not just as a portraitist, and it's certainly not, first of all, as a portraitist, that he's getting his first royal commission. Tell us about the sides of Holbein that we often overlook at this particularly early stage. Well, he was an artist who was capable of producing the most extraordinary compositions, and particularly the illusionistic compositions. And we mentioned earlier the sort of designs that he did for printers, um, for books. I think you see the same sort of animation in miniature on some of his designs later for goldsmiths, for example. 
But what he was able to create for Henry VIII at Greenwich in 1527 included, on the one hand, this large painting, we're told, of a battle, the Battle of Terouanne, in which the French were defeated by the English. And we're told that this was shown off to the French embassy by Henry VIII, who clearly thought this was extremely amusing to show them their defeat. I and mean, obviously they can't have agreed with that. But Holbein did something very large, we know, and convincing. We don't have any replicas of it, but we know he used a lot of canvas. And then we know that when they went into the theatre next door to see a mask in which Princess Mary starred before them and the ladies of the court, if they looked up above, they saw what seemed to be a very complex representation of the heavens, which Holbein devised with his friend, the German-speaking court astronomer, Nicholas Kratzer. It's quite difficult to understand how this was made. We're told it involved two cloths and a sort of vision of the heavens. So it was clearly a very elaborate astronomical painting. And you would have needed not just the advice, which he clearly had from Kratzer, but the skill to compose on a very large scale and create this sort of very theatrical illusion. So Holbein was also capable of making these very large scale, very convincing compositions, which it's a bit harder, I think, for us to grasp today because really none of them survive. We'll find out in the second part of this special discussion about Holbein in the next episode of Not Just the Tudors, where we follow Holbein to Henry VIII's court and get to see it through his eyes. Before we finish, thank you so much for your support. We're just about to hit one million downloads since launching five months ago. I couldn't do it without you. I'd be very grateful if you'd subscribe to Not Just the Tudors and if you'd rate and review it on your podcast platform of choice. History is full of extraordinary people, the Tudors being just a handful. In my latest film on History Hit, we meet Bess of Hardwick and go inside the incredible house that she built, a house that defines the elegance and grandeur of the Elizabethan age, a house fit for a woman who climbed to the top of the Tudor social ladder. To find out more about the life of Bess, and many more fascinating figures from the past, sign up via the link in the description with the code TUDORS for an exclusive discount.